we're driven to be productive. We are averse to being idle. And so when we spend the hours of our days with nothing to show for those hours, it makes us feel unproductive. And that undermines our sense of purpose and our sense of satisfaction. Hey, what's up, you guys? My name is Mick Koshovsky, and welcome to another episode of That Remote Life Podcast, where we hear from location-independent entrepreneurs and professionals so you can learn to quit the cubicle and live life on your terms. Today on the podcast, I'm very excited to be joined by Cassie Holmes, a professor at UCLA's Anderson School of Management, where she focuses her research on the most important topic of all, happiness. Her new book, Happiest Hour, explores how to beat distraction, expand your time, and focus on what matters most. During this episode, we also discuss the key elements of our lives that make us happy, and more specifically, how digital nomads and remote workers can design their lifestyles to maximize happiness. Before we jump into the interview, however, make sure you subscribe to my newsletter, Remote Insider, where every Monday I share the most important developments in the areas of remote work, online business tech, and the digital nomad lifestyle. It has been called mandatory reading by other subscribers, and if you enjoy this podcast, I guarantee you will also love being a Remote Insider subscriber. You can subscribe to that at thatremotelife.com forward slash remote insider, all one word. And you can also read some example newsletters there so you know what you're signing up for. Also, I'd like to thank Safety Wing for sponsoring the show. Their travel and medical insurance is specifically designed for digital nomads and remote companies. I will tell you a bit more about the awesome things they're creating for you later in the episode. As always, if you haven't subscribed or left a review already, please consider doing so now. Just hit the subscribe or follow button on your podcasting app and you will never miss any new episodes and you'll help us climb the the charts and attract new listeners. I've also made it really easy for you to leave a review. You can either do so straight in your app right now or head over to ratethispodcast.com forward slash TRL and leave your review there when you get to your computer. Finally, I'd like to invite you to join our TRL listener Slack channel, which you can find at thatremotelife.com forward slash Slack. This is something new that I'm launching as a way to connect with listeners of the show like you. I'm doing this for a few reasons. Number one, I'd love to learn more about the types of content you'd like to see more of from the podcast, but I'd also like to add more value to you. In our Slack channel, you'll be able to have direct contact with me, meet other listeners of this show passionate about the future of work, the digital nomad lifestyle, and entrepreneurship and we'll be putting together events and Q&As with some of our biggest podcast guests to dive in even deeper with them. Access to the Slack channel is completely free. And again, the link to join is thatremotelife.com forward slash Slack. But all right, you guys, without further ado, let's dive into this awesome conversation with Cassie Holmes. All right. And we're recording. Cassie, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you here. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. So I'm super stoked to have you on here because you are the author of the new book, The Happier Hour, uh, how to beat distraction, expand your time and focus on what matters most. And obviously happiness is what we all want. Uh, It's what we all strive for. It's why we do everything. So I'm very excited to have you on here. 
to talk about how we can be happier individuals. So uh, I want to start off with what actually made me aware of your work first, which was an article on CNBC about um, how actually more time doesn't make us happier. And the very interesting thing that you uh, wrote in that article was that actually uh, based on research, if you have more than five hours of free time, your happiness levels uh, based on your research are actually lower. So can you tell me a little bit about that research and sort of what's going on behind the scenes there to to make that true? Like why are people who have more than five hours of free time, uh, why do they report as being less happy? Yeah, and it's, it's a good question and actually spurred out of um, my own experience of feeling like I did not have enough time of uh, feeling time poor. And we can talk about that in a little bit um, about the negative effects of that. It was just one of those crazy days where I was like rushing around. I'm like, I don't have enough time. And I'm sure so many people can identify with this. And in those moments, it's like, clearly the solution is to quit <laughs> work and go live on an island somewhere and have all the hours of your day to spend however you want, because surely you'd be happier, right? Or at least that's what I thought or I daydreamed about. Um, but we tested this because it is an empirical question. Are people who have a whole lot more time to spend however they want, are they happier? And so in our research, this is research with Hal Hirschfield and Marissa Sharif, we looked across studies, and in one of those studies, we analyzed data from the American Time Use Survey, which looks uh, across tens of thousands of working as well as non-working Americans, how they spent the hours of a regular day. And from that, we calculated how much time each individual spent on discretionary activities um, and related that to their happiness and with that, what we found was really interesting. The pattern of results was this upside down U-shape. So on the one hand, yes, people with too little time are less happy. And in our data set, it suggests that with approximately less than two hours of discretionary time, people are less happy. And that's because they feel stressed and overwhelmed. And I can certainly relate to that. And those who feel really busy overly busy can relate to that too. But what was interesting is this other part, which you're asking about. And it's so interesting because it flies in the face of our daydreams, right? Or at least my daydream of like, if only I had a lot more hours and I'd be happier. And what we found is that's not true. And digging into why, it's it, we find that, well, we're driven to be productive. We are averse to being idle. And so when we spend the hours of our days with nothing to show for those hours, it makes us feel unproductive. And that undermines our sense of purpose and our sense of satisfaction. And so what that suggests is, except it's not really for happiness. It's not about having a whole lot more time. It's about actually how you spend the time, because notably, I said with less than two hours, people are less happy. With more than five hours, people are less happy. But there's a big swath of time in between there. Between two and five hours of discretionary time in the day, there's no relationship, actually, between the amount of time people have and their happiness. And so what that actually suggests is, is really about how we spend 
the time that we have um, that is predictive and critical for the happiness we feel. And that is what propelled my research subsequently and is really what Happier Hour is all about is how do we invest the hours of our days so that we look back on our days and instead of feeling exhausted and depleted and overwhelmed or dissatisfied and lacking sense of purpose. In fact, we look back on our days and regardless of how busy we are, we feel fulfilled and satisfied and sort of ready for the next day and excited for the next day. Yeah, I think it's so interesting because I am left wondering, how do you define free time, right? Because like, does that mean when I'm working out, that's free time, even though sometimes working out is like something that's on my agenda, right? Like I have, it's on my calendar. I have to go work out. Otherwise it doesn't happen. So how do you define free time versus things that you are, you know, cause a lot of people do professional things, quote unquote, in their free time. So does that count as free time? I'm just kind of curious how you define that. Yeah, how we operationalized it. And it's a really important question. And what we wanted to make sure is that we're not using our own experience of like, well, for me, that's discretionary. Because as you noted, like exercise for me, it's actually, it feels, it's like a delight. It's like, yay, this is time for myself to think. Um, Others are like, that is total obligation and chore. And so instead of relying on our own sort of assessment, what we did was we actually took all of the activities that fill people's days. So the category is there's something like 140 activities, and we presented them to another group of participants, so 500 random Americans, and we pre-registered that we would calculate any, we would count any activity that more than 90% of people said was discretionary. So, and by discretionary, we mean spending in a way that is pleasurable or something you want to do. Basically, it's what you want to do versus what you have to do. And notably, 90% is quite um, conservative. So we actually ran the analysis where 75% of the people agreed and we saw the same effect. Now, what are the activities that ended up getting calculated as discretionary, according to um, this other sample of folks? Well, it included doing nothing. So relaxing. And actually there is a category of when people say I did nothing. So it included doing nothing. It included relaxing. It included watching TV. It also included more active leisure. Like you mentioned, like playing sports, actually playing sports with one's kids, going to sporting events, going to the movies. It also included social activities. So spending time with family and friends. So all of that was lumped into, or we calculated as discretionary for this analysis. Now, I will also say that in other studies within this project, there was a more subjective measure. So people were asked, how many hours today did you spend on things you wanted to do? Did you spend on spare time activities? And there you saw the same relationship. So I think that it's more the i the pattern of results is picking up more on this question of like amount of hours you spend on these discretionary activities or free time activities versus not now also 
really important. And I think um, going back to your question of that too much time group, you know, those that had more than five hours of discretionary time, what we saw was we actually took the discretionary activities and then we asked people to say, which of these activities, discretionary activities are worthwhile, quote unquote. And from that, and also which are social. And so actually we found that when people spent their discretionary activities in worthwhile ways, and the activities that got counted there were exercise, um, were enriching hobbies, you actually didn't see this dip in satisfaction. So it's not that it continued to go up, it just leveled off. So if you have a lot of discretionary time and you're spending that time in ways that feel enriching and worthwhile and productive, like exercise, like you know, investing and enriching yourself with a particular hobby, then you actually don't see the too much time effect. And that actually get, picks up on some really interesting work that looks at retirees, for instance. You actually see that retirees are like... You know, people are sort of like working through their lives, like waiting for the day they get to retire and they don't have to work anymore. But then you see this drop in satisfaction and satisfaction and happiness because they they're in our sort of too much time condition. But retirees who um, you see that retirees who do volunteer work, for instance, are significantly happier than those who don't. So it's really going back to what I suggested before, it's actually not so much a question of how much time you have. It's really how you invest that time. And the goal is investing the time, the hours that you do have in activities that feel worthwhile, maximizing those, minimizing the hours that you spend wasted, that feel wasteful for you, um, irrespective of whether those worthwhile and wasteful activities happen to be in your professional life or your personal life, right? That's so interesting because um, have you ever heard of the book, The 4-Hour Workweek? So it's sort of, you know, a lot of people will call it like the digital nomad Bible. But what's really interesting about what you're saying and what Tim Ferriss says in that book is there's a, a whole chapter called Filling the Void. Because the idea is if you create a business that kind of, you know, allows you to not have to work many hours per week, right? The four hour work week. Now you have all this time to fill. And what do you do with this time? And interestingly, Tim Ferriss in some interviews has said that he wishes, you know, in retrospect that he had made that section um, a bit more difficult to miss because it's the one that gets skipped over the most because a lot of people report saying like, well, okay, I have all this free time now. What do I do? And that entire chapter of the book is all about here's how to fill all this time that you have now, right? Because just sitting there twiddling your thumbs is actually not very beneficial. So it's interesting that your research kind of supports what he found anecdotally, I guess is the word there. Um, that's that's very, very interesting. Um, so essentially what you're saying is that it's not how much free time you have, but kind of really the more time that you spent doing on things you want to do versus feel like you're being forced to do, that's what you're looking for. So even if you have a job and you spend a lot of time working, if you're doing something that you want to be doing through that job, 
that's still going to have a, a positive effect. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, but I actually wouldn't, I, I think stepping away from the label of want to versus have to um, is important here because that's how we operationalize discretionary time. But I think the better label is what's worthwhile ways of spending. So activities that are worthwhile, some of them are, you know, part of your job. So your work is, you know, officially like an obligation, (laughs) but there are certainly activities within your work that are absolutely worthwhile and fulfilling and in line with your, what drives you and your purpose, your individual purpose, not just like what your, you know, the outcome of your job requirements are. So really what I want folks to do is, okay, so it's really important that you prioritize and make time for and allocate hours for those activities that are worthwhile, minimize hours that feel wasteful. Now the question is, well, what are those worthwhile activities? And in the book, in Happier Hour, I have a bunch of activities to help folks identify for themselves what are those worthwhile ways of spending. And so one in particular is super helpful is time tracking. And so this is over the course of a week, writing down for each half hour, half hour, what you're doing, but more important, because that's what a lot of time tracking is, it's just like, what am I doing? And it, that is helpful, because it makes you more attentive and intentional and aware of how you're spending. But more important than that, as important than that, I should say, is in that, as you're writing down what you're doing, and be quite specific. So not just work versus hanging out. Well, what activity in work are you doing? Um, and rating on a 10-point scale, how did doing that make you feel? So yes, in terms of enjoyment, also satisfaction, fulfillment. And so what that allows you to do is at the end of the week, you have this fantastic personalized data set that then you can analyze. You can look across it and see like, okay, what are those activities that got my highest ratings, that made me feel the best? What are those activities that made me feel the worst? And also really helpful, what are the commonalities across those best activities? And so you can can pull out, oh, it's really important for me to not just like socializing or work, it's actually a way that I socialize. I notice, for instance, that when I am having a one-on-one conversation, that is what makes me feel connected and really happy. Going to a group lunch Actually, yes, it's quote unquote socializing, which the time tracking research says is important for happiness. But for me, it's actually not a great use of time because I don't feel connected. It's just after it. I'm like, oh, that was something that I did. Same with work. So you can identify what within your work days, what are those work activities that actually were really satisfying and fulfilling? Also, what was that time that felt really wasteful? Um, And usually the reason I say wasteful is because when you look at those activities that get the lowest ratings, they tend to sort of pick up on those that undermine uh, in self-determination theory. And so there's like three drivers of relatedness. So something that makes us feel lonely is an unhappy activity. Competence, something that makes us feel incompetent like it is a waste of time 
Like I'm not good at it or it's not propelling anything. So it's a waste of time. Those are activities that tend to be among the least happy. So like commuting, doing chores, also agency. So something that undermines our sense of control and that's where you get pick up on obligations. So something that feels like I have to do, like someone is telling me to do it and I don't even see the point of it. You know, I'm driven by someone else's schedule. Those are activities that really people find frustrating and negative. So it's really helpful. So you see what are those activities and dimensions for you personally, not me or research even telling you what are worthwhile versus wasteful ways, but according to you and your own experience, And you can also see just how much time you spend across those activities. And that's really illuminating because then you actually see just how much time you might be wasting on these activities. And also, you know, how maybe how little you're spending on these really worthwhile ones. And like, okay, there is an opportunity for reallocation, both within your workday as well as your outside of workday. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because it makes me think about like the Eisenhower matrix. If you've ever heard of that, like the the, the productivity matrix, you know, where it's like four quadrant. It's like, uh, you know, important, uh, but not urgent, like urgent and important. And like one of the things they say is like you want to spend as little time as possible in urgent and important. And those are the sort of things where it's like what you're saying is. I have to do this because there's urgency behind it. It doesn't matter if I want to do it right now, I have to do it. And so I think it's very interesting that it kind of like agrees with that whole uh, idea in terms of like where you should be or where you want to be spending uh, more of your time. The importance versus urgency is a really important um, uh, concept to sort of pull out is it is important (laughs) for people to figure out what is important to them, because that's also not all that clear. So yes, the time tracking helps you to identify, okay, what are those activities that are important? But it's also uh, important, (laughs) using important to talk about importance, um, is to, uh, in our research, we actually find that those who think about their time from a broader perspective, thinking about their years and their life not just hour by hour, that actually helps identify what's important. Um, And so one of the exercises, another exercise I have in, um, I talk about, and I will also note that I don't think we've mentioned that this book is based off of a course that I have developed and have been teaching to our MBAs and executive MBAs at UCLA for the last uh, four years. So I've seen how these, for the students, it's assignments in the book, it's exercises, how it impacts um, my students uh, in their lives. And one of these assignments is quite poignant. And what I have, um, what I urge folks to do is actually to write their eulogy And initially, Mm. that's like, yikes, that doesn't sound happy at all, right? So what is your eulogy? It's what people say about you when you've died. So I have folks write their eulogy. Um, That is, how do you want to be remembered? What legacy do you want to leave 
you know, what are the words that you want people to use to describe you upon your passing? And initially, you know, my students are like, I can't do this. This is too much death. <laughs> it's not an exercise about death. It's absolutely actually about life. And what it's leading you to do is to write out and clarify what is this life, not this week, but this life that I want to live. And with that, that highlights your personal values. So what does matter to you? Um, what is important? And we have found that when people actually take this broader perspective of their time, thinking about their life overall, it actually makes them spend their hours in ways that are important and not simply driven by urgency. So mm. it's totally like it that that quadrant you you relate it to a quadrant, but I think it's just uh, pulling out what are those activities that are really important, irrespective of their urgency. And in actual, like we can talk a little bit later or <laughs> whenever you want um, about some of these actually activities that are really important, but get ignored because they don't seem urgent. Like these simple moments that really connect you with the people that you love, these simple moments that are like connecting you with the world around you um, through awe or through nature um, or through, you know, but oftentimes it's easy to pass through them and not prioritize time for them because they don't seem urgent. <laughs> like you're responding instead to all these, you know, pressing work demands. Um, but actually then there's yet another exercise that highlights just how actually urgent or precious even these simple moments are so that you don't miss them just because you're distracted um, and thinking about what's next and driven by urgency. So I think that actually ties really well with what I was going to ask you next. But, but before I ask you that, I want to uh, clarify something. So you mentioned that, you know, spending time to sort of plan out, you know, like you said, like your eulogy, like kind of like plan out your life and, and think about what you want to be remembered for. Would that then suggest that if you do like weekly or monthly or quarterly, yearly, like planning kind of exercises on a regular basis, that that would then also help you like be happier because you're prioritizing what's most important? Only if you let your life thinking inform the quarterly thinking. <laughs> um, so yes, it's important to plan so that you prioritize what's important, but simply by planning the next three months, that's not going to reveal what's important to you. What thinking about your life is what reveals what's important to you. And then the planning is making sure you create time, craft time, spend your time in ways that support the, your higher order goals. Got so, it. Okay. Yeah. I wanted to take a quick break and tell you about our sponsor for today's episode, Safety Wing. 
As a longtime digital nomad and remote worker, I can tell you from experience that travel medical insurance is extremely important. The more time you spend abroad, the more you increase your chances that eventually something will happen. Maybe you will get sick and need to see a doctor, or you're going to crash your scooter in Bali and have to get a cast. Either way, figuring out how to pay for that procedure in a foreign country is not what you're going to want to deal with at that moment. And that's why I love SafetyWing. Their services are designed for people like you and me. Their Nomad Insurance is a global travel medical insurance with emergency coverage across 185 countries. Their remote health package, on the other hand, provides remote companies and employees with global health insurance. Not to mention that SafetyWing is also funding the Plumia Project, which is working to establish the first ever country on the internet. So if you're still nomading unprotected, what are you doing? Head over to safetywing.com and find the insurance package that's right for you. And also, consider using the affiliate link in the show notes, which will directly support me in continuing to produce this podcast. So thanks again to SafetyWing for sponsoring us. And now back to the episode. So you were mentioning, right, about how these like small moments sometimes feel like they're not urgent, but they're actually very important. And I feel like that relates a little bit to something else that your research pointed out, which was how meaningful relationships are actually one of the highest uh, uh, contributors to to happiness. Can you define first what is meaningful relationships? Like, like what does that actually mean? Yeah, it's when you have a connection with someone, those relationships are ones that you feel known and cared about and you know and care about the other person. Um, and you have that sense of connection and belonging from it. And so like just to highlight how important having those genu- that genuine connection, that sense of belonging is, is like if you look at, I mean, going back to or sort of the classic theory of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, at the base, these are things that we need in order to survive and thrive and be happy and fulfilled. At the very bottom are physiological needs. So we need shelter, food, water, health, right? But the very most, the next on this pyramid, the next most basic psychological need is a sense of belonging. That is feeling genuine connection, that you have relationships that are supportive, caring, that value you, you feel known and you know the other person. Um, now, how, what activities cultivate that? Well, one is attention. <laughs> like when you're spending time in a sort of social setting of actually having not just that you're doing something with another person, but the reason that you're doing it is to be with that other person. Um, conversation. So there's a uh, exercise that I have uh, my students do in class where I sort of pair them up and I have them do this. It's called the relationship closeness induction task. Basically, it's a set of questions and it's been empirically validated by uh, researchers and what it is. And it only takes 15 minutes and it's been validated to show that at the end of it, people feel closer and more connected and like they're friends with this person. And like the first uh, few minutes is like just these normal questions that you sort of 
ask when you meet someone like, hi, what's your name? What do you do? What made you move here? You know, like those, those very superficial sort of basic questions. And the importantly in this exercise is like you ask a question like on this list, the other person answers, and then they ask you that same question and you answer. And then after that first couple minutes of these most basic questions, then they move on. I'm like, all right, now ask each other from the second list. And the second list is a little bit more about one's experience. So what are your hobbies? What do you like to do? Where have you lived in your life? Um, And then the last set of questions are these really sort of more personal questions. It's not just how you spent your time and your experiences, but your emotional experience. Like what was your favorite childhood memory? What's your greatest source of pride? What's your greatest fear? And by in this process, you have this reciprocal, because you ask each other the same questions, escalating because it gets more and more personal, self-disclosure. So through that reciprocal escalating self-disclosure, that's what creates this connection, this closeness. And so that's just how you sort of initiate and go into a relationship. Um, But then there is other uh, things to keep in mind. How, once you have a strong connection, do you cultivate that connection such that you continue to enjoy it? It continues to bring happiness. You continue to pay attention and are not subject to something that we call hedonic adaptation, which is the fact that we get used to things over time. So when we do the same thing over and over again, when we're with the same person for a long period of time, that the impact, the emotional impact of that starts to wane. So this is it's good that we adapt in the face of bad circumstances because it helps us be resilient. But when you know you found someone whom you love so much that you would want to marry them, <laughs> and you do marry them. And if you stop paying attention to them, right, um, and the emotional impact of being with this person that, you know, is so important um, that you start taking them for granted and you don't even notice. And then um, that relationship can suffer, too, because you're not noticing the happiness that is right there in that other person. Um, So... Even once you've established close connection, a really big point and challenge for happiness is continuing to cultivate that connection so that those relationships are really strong. There's a really interesting, <laughs> you're like, all right, you answered the question, but I think there's one more data point that no, is no, really you're good, you're good. to this. Um, there was a really interesting longitudinal study that came out of Harvard where they basically tracked an, uh, a cohort of men uh, over 75 years. And so some of these guys were Harvard students. Some of them were just um, kids living in Boston at the time. And over the 75 years, this is a Harvard study of d- adult development, they would um, touch base with them and ask sort of, what are you doing? How satisfied are you in your life? 
And with this amazing data set, they could look at the end of their lives, these guys' lives, which varied in success and varied in all of these sort of um, dynamics and circumstances. The single biggest predictor of life satisfaction was not fame, nor was it money. Some of these things that people are like, oh, that's success. It is whether they had strong, supportive relationships. And it didn't have to come from a partnership. It didn't have to come from like having a spouse. It could come from having a friend that feels like family. You know, it is those strong, supportive relationships that is the biggest predictor of life satisfaction. Mm. So I want to stay on this topic because it's really, really important. Obviously, a lot of people who listen to this podcast are either digital nomads or, or remote workers. And one of the things that I've noticed in meeting other digital nomads, and I know I've talked about this with friends before as well, is that we go deep very fast because we know there is a ticking clock to our relationship, right? And I mean, I don't mean that in terms that like, we're not going to be friends once they leave this place, but they are eventually going to leave this location. Either I'm going to leave or they're going to leave. And so we know that we don't have these like large swaths of time for to like allow our relationship to, to develop. So what we've noticed is that nomads go deep quick. Uh, and I found that, that that's so interesting, that exercise that you have students do, because it's very similar to, I mean, it happens to us all the time where we meet somebody for the first time. Maybe we've known each other on social media a few times, like ex exchange messages, and then we meet up and it's like, what, what's your relationship with your parents like? And, you know, you kind of go deep fast and develop these relationships. But my follow-up question is for digital nomads, right, with, with that population in mind, when they leave how does that affect, like, did you find anything in your research about how to continue that relationship and that, that the meaningfulness of it when it's remote, right? Does it carry the same weight? Uh, what, did you find anything uh, about that? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And I love because um, this going deep fast um, idea is because, uh, like I, I suspect it's driven by a couple things. One is that, you know, that you don't have that long amount of time in order to sort of cultivate that relationship, maybe at a more natural pace. So you go deep fast, but also because you are nomads, there's a lot of independence in that yet for the reasons I said, our sense of connection is so crucial so it's almost like, oh my gosh, you know, it's like something you're so thirsty for. So you get into it really fast. You don't take it for granted that, um, or not only you don't take it for granted, but you're, that sense of belonging and connection isn't sort of naturally like created given your circumstances. So you have to create it. Like, so, which is really interesting. Now, in terms of, um, feeling connected from spending time together in the same space versus feeling connected um, for other reasons. I, I actually don't know, and I'm trying to think really quickly what research could speak to that. Um, 
Because for example, while maybe you, you think about yeah. it, like one of the things that we'll do with like friends of ours is we'll do like Zoom dates, right? Like we can't go yeah. out to the bars together, go hang out. Uh, but what we'll do is we'll say like, hey, like let's jump on a Zoom call and like catch up and we'll spend like an hour, hour and a half, you know, just kind of like talking. So would that be, do you think or do you, do you have research that would show that that is as impactful as being in the same space together or, or not? Like how does that, do you have any information around like, how does that affect the relationship and the growth or, or lack thereof? Yeah. And I, um, I don't know, like, and I, I, I don't, I can't think of any sort of empirics that speak directly to that, but I actually think that as going back to, you know, the time tracking of like figuring out, all right, where, what are those ways of spending time? Or what are those activities that make you feel most connected? And actually, if it is about feeling known and supported, then it doesn't actually require you to be in the same space unless that support means actually physically helping and showing up and bringing you soup when you're not there. But nowadays, you can order someone's soup even when you're from across the country, right? So, and you can have that conversation that's really revealing and vulnerable and connecty without being in the same space. Um, and technology, it's so interesting because, you know, there are actually some downsides of technology. It distracts us, like, and it's been shown and it like has negative effects. But what it has also allowed us to do is stay truly connected with each other through conversation. You know, what I said allows us to, gen you know, sort of cultivate that connection. It's conversation and knowing and um, sort of understanding and listening and contributing. That is, you know, absolutely happens, um, can happen remotely. Uh, yeah. So I'll just say, I don't know what data speaks to it specifically, um, but from understanding what are the inputs to connection and relationships, I don't see why being in the same physical space is a requirement. So the interesting thing here is um, one of the, the, the concerns for a lot of people who are becoming nomadic, right, is am I going to be lonely? Right. Like, do you, and like, I'm very fortunate that I became a digital nomad with my wife. So I was never truly lonely, even when I was alone. Right. But the thing that we've found through doing this now for six years is that the first two years were actually lonely because, or we felt lonely or we felt like we had a lack of community because we almost had to re-engineer and recreate our whole community with people who do what we do. But now that we've kind of like saturated our community with more people that we like love and that we hang out with and that we, you know, are that we're friends with who do what we do, we end up meeting different groups of them in different places. And so we do get right like, hey, this this person's going to Mexico, like let's meet up for this event or these people are going here, let's go do that. And so it almost took time for that flywheel of community to build up. And then now you can kind of like jump from place to place and you always have someone there that you've known from this other place a year ago that, you know, you, you kind of like pick up where you left off, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And even your use of the word community and the fact that it took you time to develop that, but that you have one, that's your answer right there. 
your community means that you feel a sense of belonging with a group of people. And, and through that, that's the social connection, right? And it is now that you have that community, that's, that will offset the loneliness. That is what is important for the um, happiness. Um, and it doesn't require actually, like, I mean, I, I've picked up on this theme um, a few times now, but I think it's just so important to highlight that it's not so much about how much time you have or even how much time you spend on a given activity to make it have a really big effect on your happiness. So if you're going deep fast and if when you are spending the time, it is really genuine and open and like you're, you're feeling that, that need for connection. Um, and if you do that efficiently, it doesn't, it doesn't require spending day in and day out with the same person over time. It's really showing when you are spending the time showing up fully and being not distracted and not taking it for granted so that you're distracted from whatever, you know, means that is, and you're not paying attention, but you're making the most of that time, which it sounds like you, you do, you go deep fast. Yeah. And when you reconnect, it's like right where you left off. It's not this, uh, you know, here we go again of having to build it right, up. Right, right. It's and it's also interesting because so there's uh there's a book that recently came out called uh the two hour cocktail party uh by this guy uh, his name is Nick Gray, and when I it's all about how to structure a party and get together with people and he has like sets of questions to ask and all that kind of stuff but the idea is like hey you come here you get to meet new people you have two hours so it's not like somebody just like lingers on and like doesn't want to leave this party or whatever you know how long you're going there for. But when I was reading this book, I just immediately thought this is such a great tool to facilitate, right, this going deep fast. And I and I really like that. And for anyone that's listening, it's such a great tool to like, all right, I'm going to this new city. Uh, I'm going to use what's in this book to kind of like set it up and go and like make new friends, go deep fast. And then that way, when you're in a new city or a new place, you kind of very quickly hack a community while you're there and you can kind of like, you know, uh, enjoy the spoils of that, quote unquote. Um, but I want to ask you before we run out of time, I want to be respectful of your time, but I want to ask you about this idea of a work bestie. I heard you say when I was doing research for this interview that that is actually a very important part of being happy is having somebody at work that you feel that you are very good friends with and that you can like hang out with and so on and so forth. How can companies turning, you know, uh, you know, looking at them instead of us as individuals, what can companies and specifically remote companies, uh, which are obviously growing in number today, do to facilitate that, in your opinion, of finding that sort of work bestie? Yeah, because it's so hard. Um, and that, I think, is one of the reasons that we're seeing after this um, uh, two years of remote work where people are feeling really disengaged from their, from their work um, is because they have missed out on that ability or that those sort of opportunities to cultivate friendship. Like, yes, on Zoom calls with folks, you are able to get the task done. But when there's a group of Zoom, you know, 
people on Zoom, you're not going to get really in, like deep fast, <laughs> right? Um, and so there aren't those opportunities to develop friendship. Um, and so what then, and given that that's the problem, so the, so to the, the work bestie, there's this question in Gallup data, which asks, do you have a best friend at work? And initially it sounds so silly, right? It's like something a third grader would ask. But when you look <laughs> at the data, those who do say yes to that question, I have a work bestie, they are more engaged in their work. They perform better at their work, probably because they're more engaged. They're happier with their jobs and job satisfaction translates over into life satisfaction. For in the remote work context, for um, work nomads, um, that doesn't happen naturally. So you as a, f- a firm or you individually, you need to figure out ways that it is developing friendship, not just social time. So it's not just, um, you know, these obligatory <laughs> happy hours that you might show up to. Right, right. Um, like, Taco Tuesday, about, yeah. Yeah, the role of agency. If we're, we're made to do them, it's not fun. But if you actually um, create opportunities for people to have those genuine conversations, with reciprocal escalating self-disclosure, for instance, um, as well as over time. So it's not just like, you know, we have this amazing connecting conversation now, but then I don't see you. It's like, okay, like let's have a standing check-in so that that there is something that is um, sustainable about that relationship. Even if it's remote, it's like, you know, how how's it going now? That thing that you shared with me that you were really struggling with or that thing that you were really proud of, how's, how, you know, what's going on with that, you know, and then um, that uh, cultivates that connection over time. So given that it doesn't happen naturally in the remote setting, you as an individual, and I think it's, instead of relying on firms, I think that you can, you know, we all have agency. That's what happier hour is about. How, based off of the science, what choices can you make to be happier? And we do have choice in our happiness. Our research shows that. So yes, some of our happiness is influenced by our genetic disposition. We don't have control over that or inherited, you know, are you naturally a cheery person or not? We don't have a ton of control over our life circumstances, although um, you work nomads are sort of claiming control of your life circumstances, but those things actually don't have as strong or big as an impact as one thinks as how you spend the time in your days and how you are engaging in that time. Are you paying attention? Are the ways that you're spending time in line with what really fulfills you and your values and all that stuff that we talked about that you get clarity on when you're thinking about your life overall? Um, and your individual purpose, uh, that's, that's what we have control over. And that's what happier hour is, is it's like, okay, what are some things that you can do? Some ways of spending time, some ways to think about your time so that you make it as worthwhile as possible. Mm. Before we wrap up, Cassie, uh, is there anything that I didn't ask? I know this is like a very 
big topic. It's also a very important topic, right? How to be happy. So is there anything that I didn't ask that we didn't cover that you're like, if people, you know, stop listening right now, they will have missed out on, on something really important. Is there anything that we missed like that? Um, so I think one thing that we maybe I didn't go into enough was it's not just about the activities you spend on your time on, but how you engage in that time. And that so often there are sort of simple joys that are right there available to us in the time that we spend, but we don't notice. We stop paying attention because of hedonic adaptation, or there are such everyday experiences that we assume they will continue to happen every day. Yet that's a erroneous um, assumption. And maybe actually as nomads, <laughs> you don't make the same assumption, be, assumption because you know you're going to be moving on. And so you know that your time is limited. So you do continue to savor the entire time. But so often people don't savor. They, they do take it for granted. They miss those moments of joy. One way to recognize and continue to pay attention and not miss out on those moments of joy is counting your times left. Um, and I have people sort of calculate times left in your life. So what percentage of your, so like pick something that brings you joy and count how many times have you done that in your life so far? How many times will you do that in your life going forward, recognizing that the circumstances of your life will change? If your moment of joy involves another person, which it very often does for the reasons that we said, um, recognizing that their circumstances might change, calculate, estimate how many times you have to do that in the future. And then from your total times, what percentage of times do you have left? Recognizing that our times left are in fact limited makes us pay more attention. It makes us even on on these things that are really important, but not necessarily seem urgent, it highlights the urgency that our time is finite. These moments are limited. And therefore, what that does is it makes us savor. It makes us pay attention and totally soak up those minutes that we're spending, those hours that we're spending. And so it's not just about spending more time and prioritizing time for these activities that bring you joy. But when you're spending that time is savoring and getting the most joy as, as much joy as possible from that time. Um, so then that's where you get happiness from your days and satisfaction, satisfaction and fulfillment. There's a, there's a writer and an author named Tim Urban. I don't know if you've ever heard yeah. of him before. He has an amazing blog called Wait But Why. But he, this reminds me a lot of this article that he wrote about how he did the math on how many days he was going to have left with his parents, you know, if, you know, looking at like the average age that people die and blah, 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 all this kind of stuff. And it is pretty frightening, like when you put a number on it, because you think like, oh, we have like X number of years, you know, my parents are however old. But then when you do the math and you realize like, I'm only going to see my parents another like a hundred times or whatever. That is very, very frightening. And in terms of like how that applies to digital nomads, the interesting thing is a lot of people think that because you're a digital nomad, you're not going to see your family that much. But what we found from our experience is that now we can actually spend a lot of intentional time with our parents, like my wife and I, and that actually really changed our parents' opinion of what we were doing. Like my, my, 
it really clicked for my parents-in-law when they realized that we could come home for like two weeks and spend that time with them and not sacrifice our fake our vacation days, which actually we didn't feel, you know, we were like, okay, great. We'll spend two weeks with you guys in Detroit where they live. And then we still have vacation time where a lot of other people kind of have to savor that time. And so I do think it's interesting that as a digital nomad, you both get to invest that time and really take it seriously because you're going to that place with purpose. Um, but also, like you said, there's a there's a ticking clock, so you don't really uh, you don't take it for granted. Uh, but Cassie, I want to say thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This has been so fun for me. I've learned so much. I'm sure everyone listening has as well. Let people know where can you, where can they get the book, and then as well, are you on social media? Where can people connect with you personally? Awesome. Yes. So the book Happier Hour, um, you can get anywhere on Amazon. <laughs> you can get it on. Um, your local bookstore, which I don't know what that means for you nomads, um, <laughs> but Amazon is a very effective way to get it. Um, and then I am, I'm on LinkedIn, but I'm not on other social media, but my website, uh, com. there you can see sort of where I am. You can learn more about the book. You can learn about my research. Um, and uh, yeah, that's where you can find me. Awesome. Well, Cassie, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming by. Thank you. It was fun. 